occupy it. And it was family weekend, parents weekend. And we're in this fortress-like building, right, that has six months supply of food. So the authorities, the administration was worried that we could camp out there for a while. Oh. But when the president, President Perkins, called Elmira and said that the National Guard should come, we announced that we were going to leave the building. And we marched across campus to the black student house and we stayed there, us black students, for almost two weeks. That was the time I got my fro. That was the time I learned to shoot a weapon. That was the time the two people from the Black Panther Party came. That was, uh, I almost said thrilling, but <laughs> it was a very, very oh, interesting time. And things were changing. You know, I just spent this time in India and I was sort of cool and I was, had been invited to a Tibetan monastery and I was gonna go back. So my choice that summer, after we marched, found the head of the line and put up our fist, my choice was, I had the name of the Panther Party head, <laughs> the Northern California branch, not the Southern. And I had an invitation to come back to a Tibetan monastery. I sweated through that, had literally a low-grade fever for about three months. And I thought that I would just be a chicken coward to the nth degree if I didn't join the Black Panther Party. So I, uh, because, I mean, after all, I left one cross burning, here was another one. Uh, and I made that trip across country with two friends I met Fred Hampton in Wisconsin. He says, hey, I, I hear you know how to handle a piece. And I'm going, a piece? <laughs> you know, and inside I'm trembling, hoping never to have to handle a piece. It just didn't fit me. But I was still making this trip to meet this guy. And I got, as I got closer and closer and closer and closer, my whole body started to just collapse. This, you know, how that fear is, it's like how that gut feeling is, this is not you, this is not me, this is not your thing. You don't want to harm anybody. You don't want to pick up a rifle. I mean, it was groovy, you know, and I, that's right, I was on Huey's PhD thing at Santa Cruz later, his committee, I mean. But uh, that was fine, but that was not me, the beret thing. So, Something like the night before, I called my professor at Cornell, told him that I would indeed take the traveling fellowship and return to the monastery in Nepal that had invited me. And that was the turn in my life. I went, spent a year there, met Lama Yeshe. Lama Yeshe became my teacher. I'm eternally grateful for that most fortunate thing that could have ever, I think, happened to me was meeting him. And just quickly through these, we'll, we'll end up and have a little Q&A. Quickly through the next one. Oh, that's another one of that same. 
But it was 1981 before I saw a black Buddha. Just joking with you, but there I was in, in Bangkok, in uh, Wat Po, everybody, big tourist spot, and went there, it's where the reclining Buddha is, and there are all these courtyards, you know, with thousands of Buddhas, and each one individualized, you know, stylistically different. And they were all being guilted, you know, given new robes and being, having the guilt put on. And this one, they hadn't gotten to yet. So I said to my friend, quick, take a picture of me now with this one. This is my Buddha. I think I found my Buddha. I like that black one. <laughs> oh, take up. Oh, so my father once asked me, daughter, do those Buddhists ever give you a hard time when you tell them you're Baptist? No, I said that. They don't. You know, I didn't say. I held back. No, it'd be you Baptist, you know, giving me a hard time. Right. I held back. But I show this slide not only because there he is, my sweet, you know, loving guru, who has passed away a long time ago. Somebody gave him that cross. See that cross on that mala? He loved it. Oh, he played with that mala and that cross. He, it was just great. So, no, no, no trouble from the Buddhist side, really. They, they seem to be able to handle that mixture quite well, thank you. Two more slides there. Okay. All right. No matter how you're feeling, things have been tough. I know, things have been tough lately. <laughs> Senator Obama. First time the Dalai Lama came to D.C. was getting that Congressional Medal, you know, and they, they met. Sweet. Sweet. Oh, and when the Dalai Lama came and, and talked to him as, when he was president, he went back to Dharamsala, and I get this message from friends I have in Dharamsala, and they said, His Holiness called a group of everyone together, and he gave his report. And His Holiness said about Obama, I think he is, he is more like a monk. He is more like a monk. <laughs> and I think so sometimes, you know. Like, he is more like a monk, his holiness said. And when his, apparently, I don't know, people have said this, whom I trust. When Obama was inaugurated with the 2008, he had that cutter in his pocket. You know, you offer a cutter, and then the teacher gives you the cutter back. So at the inauguration, it said, President Obama, when he's being inaugurated, he has that cutter that His Holiness had given him, has it in his pocket. We're going to get to this place with today. Next, next one. Oh, I'll be talking about this later, but this is a picture when people say to me, oh, how do you reconcile that, you know, Baptist, Buddhist, I show them these two. These two figures, of course, Martin Luther King and Thich Nhat Hanh in 1967, when there's a press conference held. This is just before King goes to Riverside Church and delivers the speech against the war in Vietnam. These two are very good friends, and they each nominated the other for the Nobel Peace Prize. Thank you. The, 
images and enough talk. Quickly, are there any questions before we have some time to just sit? Are there any questions you have for me? Anything unclear that we can do quickly? Uh, we were triumphant in 63. What I never, I'm sorry, we're rambling. Uh, 63 was also, after that spring, we were all exhilarated. And we felt triumphant. And one year later, the Civil Rights Act was passed, 1964. So good stuff came out of that, right? And we were just kids. King said, oh, the children are brave, you know, but all right, August 1963, March on Washington. September 1963, the bombing of the little girls in the church. That's all one contiguous history. We usually don't see it that way, but I'm just thinking, if you're in Birmingham, you know it's a con continuity. It's got, it's, those threads were there. The people who weren't happy that the city gave in after those weeks of the Children's March were unhappy in September. And that resulted in, those, in that bombing at 16th Street, which was the staging ground for the marches. But as you know, just this week, the Voting Rights Act, right? Great Scottish, the Voting Rights Act, the key provision gets taken out. Because why? Because society is different now. It's not congressional oversight is no longer needed to ensure voting rights. Well, you know, so still ongoing. Phil? All right. Uh, mm -hmm. So when, when you were commenting on that, I, you know, I, my journey is somewhat similar to yours in that, you know, uh, you know having to ride the Southerner in the black car, get off in Birmingham and drinking out of public water. That was kind of like in my DNA and my experience. What, what, what was interesting to me about coming to hear your lecture today was the fact that you're Baptist and you, you know that, that that Baptist Buddhism marriage kind of thing. So I'm still struggling with. Uh, I guess it's an ongoing struggle. Uh, of, uh, Things like the Voting Rights Act being written hard. Things like, uh, you know, the prison industrial complex. Mm. Things like, uh, and as a, you know, uh, and I'm thankful for insight meditation because I, my journey has been, you know, uh, uh, thanks to Gina Sharp and you know, people of color that, you know, handling that as an attachment, kind of like uh, uh, makes it uh, a way of just handling it and moving, moving through your life. So, uh, I'll be interested in giving the rest of your talk. And um, uh, it doesn't appear as, for me, that when I wake up, every morning and I sit and I do my 
my five minutes, my two minutes, my three minutes, or my 20 minutes, depending on the day, that it's creating uh, much of a change uh, in society. Maybe for me, hmm. but not in the, the uh, you know, right after, right after the Voting Rights Act was gutted, you know, you got nine states that changed Mm -hmm. change their laws right away. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, well, you know, it's an interesting journey. So. <laughs> Great. Um, and there's some anger attached to it. Uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you think? <laughs> oh, we can use meditation. I think, there. Uh, and I think what's important for us to realize is that being pacific with the sea does not mean being passive. That's, why they, that's how they come together. That none, was that clear? Right? We, you, can be, you can be peaceful. You can take a peaceful approach and still be activist. Mm? Peaceful does not mean being a doormat. It means acting, and I'm going to be saying this over and over again, nonviolently, and it's what, what that entails, how one loves, how one forgives, how one uses meditation in order to create that as a place from which you act. That has to be the place from which you act. Otherwise, I think your struggle just eats you up. You, it, you know, you have to find a way that you're energized, that you feel the connection that, yes, there's something you want to do, and you're going to do it without harming, but you're going to do it because it's necessary. You can do that. And I think that meditation can help us with that. Angela. about being engaged and being a Buddhist, being, you know, getting off the, what you get on the cushion to help with the struggle, mm -hmm. and how the struggle is, is uh, engaged is important to me. But I know there are people here, and I know that uptown, the question is how to be a Baptist and a Buddhist at the same time. Mm. And I, was, I, I, I hope that that comes through as well. Um, just, you know, I'm supposed to be teaching the hindrances today, and there's a conversation about what happens when you're full of doubt and you want to jump off the cushion. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to talk to me to talk about the Buddha and Mara and Jesus, you know, mm -hmm. and the devil. You know, like, get up from here. You got no business sitting here. This is not just, you know. And it's, so the conversation is very rich, and I'm looking forward to it. And I know there are people here who came because they were Baptists or because they were concerned about the history of their, of their church. Or their, their, there's a woman who used to be in my sangha of town who stopped coming, and I miss her. I have to call her. And I'm sorry, people have heard this before, but she said, um, I love my Jesus because he forgives me when I act up, but you make me sound, but the way you talk sounds like maybe you can make, help me change. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. might have Buddhism might help me change. Jesus forgives me when I don't change. And it was an interesting, we had a whole conversation about what that means and the, and the where, you know, where the rubber hits the road and what we, what we offer. So I don't have enough to bring to that conversation, but it's some of the questions that I have. Mm -hmm. 
sense? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think there are in in Christianity generally and in Buddhism shared values and shared virtues. I mean, what did Jesus do? You know, if you Jesus acted nonviolently, but he acted all the time. Who did he go amongst? Who did he touch when certain people couldn't be touched? You know, what did Jesus do? And I think in the, that that engagement comes out of, uh, you know, the heart. Whether it's Buddha or it's, uh, or it's Jesus. We have an example of engaged action. I think it has to be grounded. And I, I don't mean, you know, I don't fly off the handles. Just let me get behind a slow driver. Okay. No, that's true, so I can't, you know. <laughs> but, but if I think of our, I think of if the heart is the motivator, the action will not only work, but it'll be beneficial for more than just ourselves. I once was talking to a group of people in Oakland, and they hadn't found it the center yet. It was Sei Ching Ling, but they wanted to move and found the center. And now I think it's people of color. It's become it's that same space. But it was years ago. And now I was talking and, and, and I was talking about Buddhist principles. And this guy in the back of the room says, well, How can that help me? You know, people in my village were shot. And I'm working every day. And I'm working out of that anger, he said. Now what what you got, what's your Buddhism got that that I can use? And an Asian-American woman before, I, I was sort of like, hmm, trying to go back through my list. What have I said and what might be beneficial? And she said, you'd get further if love fueled your work. I'm not saying, I don't think love is easy. I don't, it's not just a platitude. I think that's what takes practice. Love takes practice. Nonviolence takes practice. I think we can use it. We got... Yeah, here's the technology. There's some practice. Let's practice that. I, because I think that'll really give you energy. It'll really help you fuel your struggle. And it'll help you to see clearly how to change things. But how do you harm yourself? You mean how do you make, make defense? I used to wonder about that too. I see black families with, especially when they were boys, I say, you know, if that one got beat and he'd go home and get his brothers. I'm gonna bring my brothers back. And I just had my sister. <laughs> so I always felt like I didn't have the arm I needed. Right. <laughs> but Bodhisattva is called a brave Bodhisattva. It's not just Chanchu Simpa. It's, it's a brave, powerful, a mighty, got energy can last the struggle. It's about lasting, too. It's about seeing, oh, I had, okay, I'm, we'll do this more, hopefully. I'll think of more conversations. But it was His Holiness who, who showed me. You can be peaceful, but don't be passive. You don't have to be. Mandela. Mandela. 
it's important that you get clear about what you want to do, not just what you want to do. It's not a desire thing. It's like what's necessary to change things. There's individual um, hatred, greed, you know, there's in, and there's institutional, systemic, you know, and to, to analyze those things, to see them clearly, and to see what might be able to be moved to change it. I think that kind of clarity can come through meditation also. Somebody over here. Yes? Um, did you see your vision of the, of the past? Do you feel like you've seen your vision of the past of what you were working for coming to fruition in the present? Like, do you see some of <laughs> Except when the Supreme Court turned that really? thing around. That was distressing. And then also another question. You talked about um, the Baptist church, and you said them not necessarily agreeing with your Buddhism. Oh, yeah. I don't go regularly to a Baptist church, so I don't have to face that. But I, I do have a family that lives in Birmingham, and I go to church. <laughs> uh, and I always get something out of it. For those of you who don't know, I call myself a Baptist Buddhist because when I was on a plane that I thought was crashing, I realized that I called on both traditions. It's not a theological point. It's not I'm holding these two conflicting doctrines and I'm battling through that. It's that that, that was so deep in my heart. Maybe you could say I'm culturally Baptist and, and you know more Buddhist, really. Uh, but when I thought that plane was going down, I called on both traditions. Lama Yeshe may never be separated from you in this or future lives. Jesus, help us. <laughs> they were both refuges. So it, it was because I think it was a dis true description of what came up, <laughs> you know, in real time of stress, that I feel like I can call on both. We'll talk more this afternoon, I hope. Amanda. I've gone through cosmological, teleological, ontological <laughs> arguments. Yes. Because I went absolutely insane during retreat, just God and Buddhism, and it's difficult. Here's one response. In the 70s, when so many of folk my age, counterculture folk that we were, went east and found Buddhism. We didn't bring all of it back. We selected what we wanted to find there and we brought that back. So when you think of Buddhists in Asia, most where most are, there's a practice that's quite different than just sitting on the cushion, right? And so how are those Buddhists relating to the Buddha? Something that's akin to, might just be akin to, not that the Buddha created the world, 
But when I want to take refuge, where do I put my trust? In the Buddha. Um, and in India, where I, where I went to junior year, uh, Hindus are said to be henotheistic. That means there are hundreds and hundreds of deities. Hmm? And everybody in society knows that there's this multiplicity of deities. But when you're doing a particular ritual, to Agni, for example, fire, god of fire, then for that moment while you're doing that, God's name is Agni. Other times, God's name is Prithvi or you know, Usha. Or, and there's a way of holding that. Uh, it's what you, I think, take refuge in and place your trust in and, yeah, what you can count on, what you feel you can count on. Sometimes that can be different and it can be held together. We're, Angela, can we call on you? Uh, do you feel ready to lead us in uh, five to ten minutes of sitting? And then, uh, what's the program? I think then, after that sitting, we'll, we'll break for lunch. And how much time shall we take, given that the time now is about 12? Yes, you can sit here if you want. I'll get down there. It's at least an hour. Sorry. I feel very honored to be asked. Thank you. So take a comfortable position. I know there are people here from other lineages and other traditions, um, some of which don't are very talky during a meditation, but I want to start with a little talkiness. Make yourself comfortable if your tradition is to close your eyes, do so. If it's to look down with your eyes slightly open, uh, follow your tradition. The idea is to bring yourself to this place. <sighs> to settle down, to feel, to take a dignified position. And not to pretend like you dropped all of your, your life outside this door, but to bring it with you to the cushion and to hold it with tenderness. And just to breathe. To feel your body breathing. To see the breath. To be a body breathing. which will be the concentration that will settle us. And once you're settled, perhaps expand your awareness to the sound of the, the air and whatever else might happen over these next nine or 10 minutes. With sound as an object of your meditation, with breath as an object of your meditation, with your body, it sits on the cushion. And of course, with your thoughts, in Buddhism there are six sense organs, the five senses that are in your body and your mind. 
So consider that the thoughts that come might be like the sounds that land on your ear. They're the thoughts that land on your mind. You didn't make them up, they just landed. And like your sound and like your breath, they'll come and they'll go. Sit comfortably and take some breaths and just relax. Let's bring our mind into focus. Let's try to get in touch with our hearts. practice of mindfulness is so wondrous. It's such an effective practice. What the Buddha taught his disciples in the very first instant this is how one should meditate. As we continue with the practice of mindfulness, we see not only how busy our minds are, typically, But we come to an awareness of how quickly emotions present themselves. But mindfulness helps us to see that thoughts and emotions arise seemingly from no place that they stay for a while and that they fade away. If we could slow ourselves down a bit, if we could not latch on to the emotions and spin a tale, spin a narrative, we'd see that the emotion itself that seems so strong might dissolve away on its own. And we could come to see that those various thoughts and emotions are not who we are.
thoughts and emotions rise for a time, stay for a time, and then dissolve on their own. not latching on to those. Sometimes there are glimpses of our true selves. Some Buddhist traditions call this Buddha nature. pure, unhindered, unimpeded, this self we have always. Rest in its vastness. If your eyes have been closed, slowly open them and come back to yourselves, full body and mind, in this space, in this time. Thank you. That's why we have this. That's fine to see that there. <laughs> oh, I hope this um, uh, this time we can uh, spend a little time talking with each other. Oh, this section is called. 
Buddha Dharma on nonviolence and oh, community. There's a lot of disparate things to pull together. Maybe disparate. If someone asks you uh, what you think is the most important, the most succinct uh, teaching of the Buddha, what would you say? What's, what's Buddhism in a nutshell for you? Not a test, just what do you think? If you had to tell someone, uh, you know, if you were that person who had passed by and you were passing this village and the person say, oh, you look a little different. Uh, what you been up to? And you say, oh, I was with this fellow called the Buddha and he taught this thing, you know, and I'm finding it kind of useful. What would you say? What's the teaching in a nutshell? Jean? Kindness. Kindness. Mm -hmm. What? Understanding suffering and the end of suffering. Oh. The Buddha said after teaching 45 years, he taught only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. Mm. Okay, cool. Kindness. Yes. Awakening. Mm. Letting go. Everything changes. Generosity. Stillness. Stillness, calm in a world of conflict. Wisdom and compassion. Mindfulness. Tracy? Get to know your own mind and not to be stressed out. That's cool, yep. That would have to be in there. <laughs> All right. All those are great. All those are good. I think when we, when we say some terms, as with any tradition, you know, that you're taking seriously, uh, when we say certain things, or give these descriptions, we have to wonder whether we've really thought what that means, you know? What does awakening mean? What did the Buddha wake up from? Where did he wake up? Did he say he had been dreaming and then he woke up? What's the dream? Buddha woke up and he hadn't been on the couch, you know, but he woke up. You know, is that like the Matrix? Is that like <laughs> all of a sudden you wake up? He woke up in the midst of being awake. He was already awake, wasn't he? So what does it mean he awoke? He is the awakened one. He certainly had become still in a way that the first five disciples, when he decided that they were the only ones alive who had just a little dust over their eyes so they might be able to understand, when he decided after seven weeks of enjoying the bliss of enlightenment, moving from one tree, seven days, 
You know that we have this image of the Buddha's awakening, uh, or we saw Bertolucci's film or something. You know, like there's another tree and Mara tries to attack, not able to. The Buddha calmly, calmly calls upon the earth for witness. When Mara says, get off that seat, it belongs to me. The Buddha doesn't have to respond. He just touches the earth lightly. And so we get that image of his touching the knees, calling upon the earth to witness. And what is the earth? Earth, earth is female. It's feminine. It's a feminine Sanskrit now. Prithavi. Mm. So what does she do? Mother Earth. She trembles in six different ways, and Mara's hosts are frightened. Get sexy. <laughs> are you with me? Just okay. Oh, the Earth moves. Oh. And then the Buddha wonders, you know, but part of his enlightenment has been that he can see the arisings and passings, not just of our minds, thoughts, and emotions. But he sees all of it at once, we're told, the arisings of other beings and their demise. And he sees that his former two teachers, all oh, Udraka, Ramaputra, and, Adep, and who's the other one? Udraka, Ramaputra. Oh, I'm conflating two names, but it'll come to me. Uh, have, have passed away. Oh, so he wonders, who else? Oh, and he thinks of the five. The five who had sat with him when he was, seemed to be such an earnest meditator. How was that marked, that he was an earnest meditator? Why did they think he was an earnest meditator? What stories do you know? Oh. So ascetic. So ascetic that the, you've seen a statue of the emaciated Buddha. Mm. The, the five joined him because, hey, this fellow seems serious. The Buddha said, I'll not get up from this seat until enlightenment is won. And so some say eight, some stories say eight, three grains of rice a day. Some say a sesame seed or two. But he did that for six years. And so it said, that the skin of his stomach touched the skin of his back. And the famous statue that was at Sarnath for so long of the emaciated Buddha, the state government, the Indian government, took away. It was, this was not the way any saint should be remembered. Hmm. Also, the Buddha thinks those five who joined him then and then who gave up on him when he decided to take an offering, who left him in disgust and went off to Tsarnath, that maybe those five could understand. And as they walked, as, as the Buddha got closer and closer, they said, oh, that looks like our former leader. Let's not show him any respect. Let's not even greet him. These are great in the Sanskrit. You see all their inflections and all their faces and all their, their cunning. I mean, we're not going to. So, but as the Buddha approaches, gets closer and closer, they find themselves rising in spite of themselves and giving Anjali. 
and saying, Siddhartha, Siddhartha, what in the world has happened to you? So still, so peaceful, all oh, this aura. What has happened to you? And what does the Buddha say? Don't call me that. Don't call me Siddhartha, you don't know me. <laughs> kind of tough, but uh, <laughs> I thought he was kind, you know, sweet. He said, mm -mm, don't call me that anymore. You call me the Tathagata. One of the famous, becomes famous epithets of the Buddha. He who has thus gone or thus come, one can't tell because of the way the vowel there comes together at the end of Tata, at the beginning of Agata or Agata. Like a bird trackless in the sky, Tathagata. That's how you refer to me. <laughs> and then, and then, what does the Buddha teach in that first sermon? So there were the two, Buddhism in a nutshell, the two, suffering and its cessation. In Mahaparinirvana Sutra, the, the mass, the big collection, the Mahavaga, in one of the texts is called the Parinirvana, uh, the complete disappearance of the Buddha. That is, his body goes away as well. In that sutra, towards the end of his life, when the Buddha is asking of Ananda, you know, is there anything else that I should say to these? I've, and, and he says to Ananda, I haven't held anything back. For the last 45 years, I've taught only two things, suffering and its cessation. Mm, nice. And then in that first sermon, back up to that first sermon, what did he tell those first five? Call me Tathagata. I've gained this new um, countenance that you see before you because, mm, because I practice the middle way, the middle path, which I discovered works best. It's a path that avoids the extremes, the extremes of overindulgence in sense pleasures, and the extreme that avoids this overly driven asceticism. Ah, you're meditative. <laughs> so you missed that expression. <clears throat> so avoiding those two extremes, the Tathagata oh, has found wisdom, has found insight, has found light, has won Nibbana. Mm, we didn't mention this one, but that peace and still and calmness, Nibbana in the Pali, Nirvana in Sanskrit, is almost a meteorological term. It's what happens when you've been waiting through all that hot, humid time in India. What happens when you can look up one day and see the rains coming? And when the rains finally arrive with their cooling, that is called nirvana. It's a cooling off of heat. Later it gets expanded into what's the heat? Desire, desire. Oh. But it's literally in India, every Indian knows it. Nirvana means the cooling rains are here. Whew. That's nirvana. 
some Westerners translated extinction, you know? The self is wiped out. Ooh, that's kind of scary. But it's Nibbana. I want to say, baby, Nibbana. It's cool. It's great. It's refreshing. Hmm. Twos, ones, so what did the Buddha then teach? I've won it by practicing the middle path. And there's another way to think of that middle path, and it's called the Eightfold Way. Right view, right so forth, right concentration to right wisdom. Those eight. Those eight are later taken out, and they become guidelines for pretty much everybody who's a Buddhist. They describe right livelihood, you know, right Mm, analysis or thinking about something. They have right with them. It's really samyak. It's like perfectly balanced. It doesn't disturb whatever. It's an action, but it doesn't rock the boat ever. It's just perfect for the occasion. It fits. How do you practice right speech, right livelihood, right thought, so, and so forth and so forth? This is what every Buddhist must be, um, or ought to be, all committed to. But then the Buddha taught in the first sermon. The first sermon is about a page and a half of English prose. And he lays out the whole teaching in the first uh, big paragraph. And in the rest, in the last part, the Buddha says, I didn't say I was this until I had observed this is what I should do, this is what I've done. This is how I practice, this is what I've accomplished. Three things for each of the four makes 12. And and, and anyway, some people analyze the first sermon in terms of 12. So what were the, I'm getting to one, two, awakening, calm, the ones, then we have the twos, which I think are really important. And then the Buddha said in the first sermon, these are the four noble truths. Hmm? This is what Steve Batchelor fights. Oh, when you do it like that, noble truths look like you're saying this is a doctrine to be accepted. That's not the case. And that's true. If you make that capital N and that capital T, you are making more of it than the Buddha made of it, the Sanskrit makes of it. The Sanskrit that says, therefore, there are four Aryan, which, okay, you can translate that noble, but yeah, okay. Stainless. Oh, truths. Truths mean such as, such as do not veer from reality. It's true because it accords with sat. Sat is the stuff of reality. Satya means you know, that's the stuff it is. So the Buddha in that first sermon teaches four Aryan um, realities or truths. And what are the four? There is suffering or stress, as this translator did earlier. Uh, there, there is suffering, the Buddha says. This is important to get clear. Sometimes you see translations that say, the Buddha said, life is suffering. That seems awfully pessimistic, doesn't it? And the Buddha didn't say that. 
If he had wanted to say life is suffering, he knew the language. The writers knew the language. They could have said jivam, ewam, dukam. Dukam is a bad state or suffering. Hmm? He could have said jivam, ewam, dukam. If there's life, it's suffering. He didn't say that. He simply said dukam. There is suffering. It's a fact. It accords with reality. If we live long enough, we're going to face some. Okay. Second truth. There is a cause of that dukkham. Hmm? The origin. There is an origin for it. I hope this is uh, the way I'm speaking you know, I know that there are people here who know these things, so I just like to engage people. I have this tendency to say, you know what that is? But I don't mean any offense, you know. Oh, tikaha. Um, so there's an origin of, of suffering. Dukkha samudjaya. Something happens and suffering comes to be. There's the arising of suffering. Samudhya. Mm. Dukkha. And he says, luckily, Third noble truth, there is an end to suffering. <laughs> there is an end. Dukkham ends, Naroda. Hmm? Then, if you want to know about that, he says, there is a path leading to the cessation of suffering. Dukkham Niroda Marga. There is a, or maga, there is a, in Pali, there is a path which leads to the end of suffering. Good news. I want to say that's chutzpah, that's gospel. <laughs> that's good news, buddy. That is good news. You know, some, some Westerners, some people have gotten hooked on, on the first or the first and the second truths of these four. You know, uh, Jack Kerouac loved Buddhism. He's fascinated by crazy wisdom, Zen practitioners. But he really thought, I think, he really thought Buddhism was all about suffering. And that doesn't help, especially if you mix it with alcohol and stuff like that. <laughs> oh, Jack. The Buddha went farther. He didn't just stop there. <laughs> so, there is the cessation of suffering. There's a path leading to it. Now, I want to add just two scriptural tiny little things. Ways of summarizing Buddhism. Dhammapada, the Dhammapada is great anyway. The verses of Dhamma. The verses of the Dharma. This over time became a sort of like a manual for, for lay folk. The monks and the nuns had other more detailed instructions. But for laity, the Dhammapada was the chief guideline and has remained uh, instrumental and influential throughout the Buddhist world. At Dhammapada 5, verse 5, there is the quote. 
hatred, himsa, not ahimsa, himsa. Hatred is never appeased or ended by hatred. Hatred is only appeased by love. This is eternal Dhamma. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. Dhammapada verse 5. So that, that verse says this is the Dhamma, the undying Dhamma. Uh, it's like the Buddha, you know, <clears throat> sat there and he looks as we might look at the world today and say, you know, this. There's just hatred and hatred and hatred and hatred never ceases through more hatred. It hasn't thus far in the entirety of our history. Martin Luther King says the same thing, exactly. Hatred is never ended by hatred. Hatred is only ended by love. King said, you have to bring a light into the dark room. Someone has to be the first. The, the last verse I want to share with you from Dhammapada, is the second one I, I mentioned today from Dhammapada, is what might be called Buddhism in threes. It's Dhammapada 183. And it says... I think I saw it on your web page. New York Insight, right on. <laughs> oh, oh, what does it say, 183? Do no harm. Practice virtue. Purify the mind. This all the Buddhas teach. That's the teaching. That is plain and simple. Or pure and simple, as Meiji Krau put it. Do no evil. Do no harm. Practice good. Practice virtue. Purify the mind. Oh. This all the Buddhas teach. That's what they teach. Oh. So I see that, so I think we can move. Maybe we can all read this together. This is uh, from the Pali. It's about action. It's about karma. On one side of the paper, you have three versions, two English and one Pali. I want us to read the version that's on the back side of that, where you just see one English rendering of it. I think this is Thich Nhat Hanh's rendering of it. I'm trying to find mine now. Thank you. 
I shouldn't have done that. That old e-machine, I closed it, now it's shut off again. At any rate, there is a sutra. It's like the Dhammapada, that is, there are, these are verses to be reflected upon often. These, the sutra, the sutta in Pali, is called, it, the sutta itself is named Upajanata Sutta. Uh, the sutta on the things that are to be brought before the mind over and over again. In other words, things to be reflected upon often. Now, what things? So I'm in this nunnery, right, <laughs> as I pointed out earlier. And I'm not speaking to anybody. The South African nun, you know. Oh, English speaker. You're at me. And uh, so we'd have tea. But most of the time, people weren't talking to me. And, the, and, and it was great. And the, the nuns would come. You know, one nun, sweet as she could be. But, you know, I don't know anybody. And I don't know what people are saying. You know, I get a little nervous. So this nun, most of them are older. This nun comes and she has two pair of sandals. So I immediately think, oh my God, I put my shoes in the wrong place. You know how that is? We're so attached to self. It's all about me, right? Oh, I, put, I did something bad. I put my shoes in the wrong place. She couldn't speak to me, but she came with the sandals and I was in the library and she was calling me out. She had two pair of shoes there. So I go, sorry, you know, I think I need to move my shoes. So she comes over. This is great. You know, if you had this experience, you go off and you're totally can't speak. So, so she comes over and she's saying, but she doesn't say it harmfully. You know, those are dumb shoes you wear now. We need this, these. Choose, please, a pair that fits you this. She had noticed. <laughs> she just wanted me to choose. Try on both of these and choose one. And you finally got there. Right? But those kind of things happen, you know, like you got judging mind, you think people are judging you, blah, 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 all that. It was just, there was this kindness all the time. People were being thoughtful, you know, trying to help me out. And when we went through these, uh, the morning ritual was about 30 minutes of the practice, right? The practice is chanted. The reason I loved it so much was you chant exactly what you're doing. All oh, the chant begins, we're offering flowers, different than the Tibetan. No, we don't have these prayers of the lineage gurus, all of this. We're, it's chanting just exactly what you're doing. Now I'm offering these flowers, how lovely. Well, you're just saying it in Pali. All right. So that was for me really liberating. <laughs> That's good to know what you're doing. Some people say they like Tibetan Buddhism, sort of mystical, you know. <laughs> what? You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Tibetan is kind of difficult. You don't know what you're doing there with all this stuff going on. But anyway, oh, don't think I'm too uh, rowdy. I am a little rowdy. Uh, but anyway, so the point about this, what you have before you is a section of a sutra called the Upajana Sutta. Oh. And when we got to that point, because these were such important practices,
practice instructions, the nuns spoke it very slowly and very differently in Thai, and then they did the Pali. Right, because Pali is foreign language for the Thai sisters, right? It's a foreign language to me, and I felt, oh great, I finally found something I can understand. But for them, Pali is a foreign language. But these instructions are important, so they're recited first in Thai. And I was blown away because I loved it so much. It was so, it was even more melodious than the Pali is. And what were they saying? They were saying, remember these points. This is how one behaves. One should say over and over again this to themselves. Okay, now, can we read this together? Okay. I am of the nature to grow old. There's no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape ill health. I am of the nature to die. There's no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only but true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are thus the ground upon which I stand. Well, there it is. It looks like it's a teaching on karma, and you say, oh, that's teaching on karma. Then go slowly through that, you know. Hmm? Maybe we don't want to, but, you know, here it is, some little more fact for us. Oh. And you'll note that these are part of the things that the Buddha describes in the first sermon. When he says, there is suffering, and he says, and what is suffering? Old age is suffering. Disease is suffering. Death is suffering. Oh to be um, unjoined from the things I want is suffering. To be joined with the things I don't want is suffering. So this, this first parts of these are themes that are echoed throughout Buddhism from the very beginning about old age, disease, and death, but also to be whisked away from the things that I hold dear. Hmm? That's suffering. Uh, but there's no escape from it. Therefore, Tibetan would say, didn't Therefore, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. And the other versions on your other side, five again. I am the owner of my actions, heir of my actions. Actions are the womb from which I have sprung. Actions are my relations. Actions are my protection. It's fine, so read it out. Whatever actions I do, good or bad, of these I shall become the heir. 
and over in the middle one at five, I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have my actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do, for good or for evil, to that will I fall heir. Okay, does that sound heavy to anybody? More than just fact? <laughs> what we do is important. And I'm not, am I stretch, stretching this too far to get into engaged Buddhism? It's like what we do is important. It's what we do, not just what we think. When Buddhists talk about reincarnation, I don't know what it is. Stephen certainly wants to chuck that out, Stephen Bachelor at any rate. And a number of Westerners do. And I, I might be with them, you know. Maybe Westerners aren't ready for that yet. Uh, Bob Thurman says we ought to change our minds, but um, maybe we're in and wrote infinite, uh, what is it right? Infinite, whatever it's about, reincarnation, rebirth. Uh, he says, yeah, the Westerners have it wrong. It's okay, it's a real fact. His Holiness is even, the Dalai Lama is now even saying, Westerners don't have to accept rebirth. They don't have to, we don't really accept, we, we talk about rebirth, not reincarnation. They're different. There, there are all these fine things being put on it. But throughout Buddhist scripture, it's like our actions are like a mystery that have consequences. They always have consequences, even when we can't see it. The law of cause and effect is a fact in Buddhism. Given that that's the case, it's only our actions. That sounds a little existential. That's what Steve, Steve Batchelor's into. It's our actions that are important. Mm. The Buddha spent most of the first sermons talking about his actions. It was when I had looked into this, when I saw that I was doing this, when I saw that I had done this, then did I accept that that was the truth. It's not like big T. We have to do this. Another way of saying this is Compassion, it's an old slogan, well, well rehearsed. Compassion is what? Love, that's, that's all that, but what is it? Mainly, it's wisdom in action. In action. In action. Do no harm. His Holiness says, but it's active, that's what I'm trying to say. Do no harm. It's not just sit in a cave and think about it. Oh, I'm so sweet, I would do them no harm. I wouldn't do them any harm at all. <laughs> Till the first time they tick you off. <laughs> oh, it's active. If you're a wise one, your behavior shows it. It's so simple. It's so simple. We're called upon to act in virtuous, well, now I'm skipping ahead, but virtuous, nonviolent, for the good ways. We're called upon to act. I think we're called upon to act. Hmm.
for a time about 10 or 15 years ago, there was almost a rift within Western Buddhist when there was first talk of engaged Buddhism. Mm. It was like all the radicals, the radicals were over here. We're Buddhist. Some woman called me up from California and she said, you're going to be at such and such conference, aren't you? And I said, no, I think I'm going to have to teach. I can't make that. And she said, you are an engaged Buddhist, aren't you? It's like, you drop everything and you come, you engaged, aren't you? It was like it was used as a, you know, a derogatory thing if you weren't involved in every activity and you, you clearly weren't engaged. Yeah. So there, there was going to be this rift between you had to demonstrate in a way you were engaged Buddhist. And Thich Nhat Hanh was, all, uh, was called into the fray because he had, he, you know, we credited him with the term, though he was, talk, he was speaking in French, but still, you know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh would say, of course, from the time you sit on the cushion, hear myself, so I'm coming back to ask you questions, but, or to involve you. Uh, if you, if you sit on the, just sitting on the cushion, you are engaged. Right? Because, you know, you're doing something and it's positive. You know, you're trying to purify your mind. You're trying to watch those thoughts come up, stay for a bit, and go down. Typically what we do is a thought comes up, we get latched onto it and carries us away. Did you notice that she sort of looked at me and looked away? I mean, where is she coming from with that? I mean, it might, it might go back to something that happened last week. I don't know. I saw that, you know. And then, you know, we get, we get carried away. There's a great, great benefit of Vipassana, says, slow down, watch the thought. If you could hold off from latching on, that thought would go away on its own. So we have to practice, though, to see that, because we want to get latched on to that tail. Hmm? Angela went away. And that's an outflow, you know, to get attached. We, um, I've been reading since I came back from the nunnery a lot more, uh, a lot more Thai uh, teachings. And I, am, I must admit, I'm totally impressed by the number of women Meiji practitioners who are great, great meditators there. It's just amazing. And some of them have written, they've collected their lectures. Just amazing, amazing uh, insight. Um, Tibetans say the mind is infinite, pure, uh, unhindered. Oh, Dzogchen, the great, the great perfection. And Thai, if what, what I understand from Thai Vipassana is, uh, we want you to relax and just watch. So watch when these things come up so you can tell when they're coming up. And you say, oh, that, that one comes. I'm not going to get attached. I'm just going to look at it. Uh, because you trust that that thought will go away. Uh, it's the same with emotions. That's what's so important. It's not just the disparate thought. It's the anger. Oh, I know I'm going to... Mm, mm. I'm trying to pick out what to say. Uh, oh. It's the same with emotions, you know. Emotions flare up. and We latch on to them. And they take us away. 
they take us away unnecessarily. So it takes practice, but and I I just think there, the vipassana has a has a whole lot to to teach. Incredible. Okay, so, so we've had a lot of Buddhisms in one, in twos. Three is the Dhammapada uh, 183. Those three things, that's what all the Buddhists teach. Non-harm, practice virtue, purify the mind, in a nutshell. Threes, the Four Noble Truths. Pretty good, Buddhist Dharma, Buddhist Dharma. So what's, what's difficult? What's a difficult concept? Selflessness. What's up with that? <laughs> I just, right? What else? Dependent origination. Oh, selflessness, dependent origination, same. Yeah. Oh, Tikaha, write it. This is dangerous too. I love blackboards, <laughs> or whiteboards. That's okay. <laughs> okay, selflessness. Oh, the biggie. Well, there's different ways. Okay. Uh, is this big enough? Yes. Anatta. Anatta. Atta is self. Anatta is no self. You think self? No, no, no. No self. Yeah, Matumba. Is that his name? Oh, you guys don't watch television. The commercial. Where he comes back. No, no, no. Not today. Not on my watch. Okay. <laughs> that one that fell flat. That's interesting. Okay. And I don't do basketball, so I, uh, anyway, I like the commercial. Does that mean there's no self? Huh? Well, I think I'm looking at you guys, and I, I hear my voice, so I think some of us are here. So what does this no self mean? Huh? Well, the Buddha under his, and under the Bodhi tree, the Enlightenment tree, Anatman, one of the verses there says, the Buddha describing to the five, he said, I looked from one end of reality to the other. Big sighted, huh? I'm sitting there meditating. This watch of the night, this happened, and this, this happened, this, this happened. I look from one end of reality to the other. From Buddha Koti to Buddha Koti. From one limit of reality to the other. He said, I didn't see self anywhere there. 
I didn't find Atman. Didn't find it. Take it, it won't there. Won't there. It won't there. <laughs> I love it. I was getting I was all this southern accent was about to come. Uh, I'm trying to stop myself. <laughs> okay. There is a synonym for this that's called shunyata. Oh, some most people in Western say shunyata, but it's long u and long i at the end. Shunyata. Shunya means zero. It's the first number from which all the other numbers come. We know that from Western. Uh, okay, shunya like that. It's not something in itself, but it makes everything possible. That's shunyata. All right, it's a synonym for anatman. Shunyata. The Buddha in one of his early sermons says, everything, everything is sunna. And, and one of those five said, now, now, sir, what do you mean everything is Empty, empty. Westerners translated empty, empty, emptiness. And so Thich Nhat Hanh came and says, we got to give that a little more positive flavoring. It doesn't mean it's empty. You know, these Westerners still go off the deep end. They, they despair enough. You know, mm, it's all empty, it's all empty. <laughs> uh -uh. So, so Thai comes up with, right, intervene. Comes up with interbeing. And what does that mean? What do Quakers say? I see you and I see all the, the non use in you. Donna, that's humanity. That's selflessness. That's interbeing. Mm. I'm sorry, Quakers say I see you and all the non use in you. All the non use in you. I see what makes you up. That's what Ty is always talking about. I see you and I see the sun. And I see the rain, and I see all the food that nourishes them. People that grace say, thank you for the 72 hands that brought this to me. Knowing that, huh? Moving towards our connectedness here. Trying not to preach about this preacher. Oh. All right. What did you? That's right. That's right. You and you are from the South, right? So you know that. Oh, no, that's Stephen. I thought you were Michael speaking. Sorry. Stephen. And Michael is from? Uh, Vanderbilt and therefore, yeah. okay. Okay. All right, where was I? <laughs> the, the synony so Chinyata is a synonym for anatomans used throughout Buddhist scripture. All right. And when the Buddha is explaining that, one of the texts comes over and over again, that becomes a synonym. Pratitya samutpada. Dependent origination is translated as, here, look at it. Uh, something, some utpada, something, remember from suffering arises, some ut, something arises, something comes up, right? Independence on this titya, pra, independence on the first thing. Something else arises in dependence on that. I look at you and I see the sun and I see the rain and I see the parents and I see the food and I see the... Mm. We are not, selflessness means we are not independently, inherently limited. 
we are not just this isolated, despairing being. We are here because of lots and lots of causes and conditions. And if we stopped breathing, we would die. Sometimes breath is the first meditation because it's the first teacher. That's why. That's why. You just couldn't live a minute without it. Well, maybe five, you know. But then, in other words, you need something else to keep going on. In that same way, the Zen priests know that for this food before them, which just appeared miraculously, it took 72 hands to bring it. Give thanks to all of them. I give thanks to all of them. Oh, sorry if, yeah, okay. I say sorry a lot, sir. So particular samadpada is a thing arises independent on another. It doesn't just come and, and the, to think that it doesn't is to say that things exist independently. All right, so Ty again says, okay, since we don't exist independently, though we all think we do, uh, you know, but if you say, didn't you have parents? Yeah, you know, didn't they put that little dress and bow on you when you were four, when you couldn't go to the store and you didn't know what money was? Huh? You are here in dependence on others. All right, so if, you're, if you don't exist independently, how do you exist? Dependently. You exist dependently. Dependently. That means not some big self, big capital S, but who you are and what you are depends on what various things went into making you. And my students said, Wesley, and some of them said, oh. Now, the thing behind this, oh, is one is, I've come to see over the 40 years, one is, well, shucks, if I'm not absolutely individual myself, and they spend four years carving out their own unique individuality, which is one of the great things about it. If I'm not that, who will there be to love me? That is, if I'm not the super special thing that I think I am, will I have to give up love? That's a big concern amongst my Buddhism students. I, that's, and they come after class and they say, but, but it's so special. I said, I know. I don't want to take it away from you. I'm not, Buddha didn't either. The Buddha wanted you to be happy. He's not saying anything like that. He just says, you know, you're not as unique as you think you are, but you are uniquely you. Because we all have different causes and conditions. Each one of us, uniquely our own. My parents just had me, they didn't have you. you know? So we, we keep our individuality. The other thing they want, they, they, they come up to me afterwards is, is, is this. I say, okay, here's the biggest thing I think when we, we talk about selves. I go over to the wall and I say, well, you know how those special moments when you just met somebody? Just trying to make it real. And I say, you know what's the first thing we tell the friend? Jenny, I met someone. I'll tell you my knees are weak. 
She was the right height, she was the politics, but then she was perfect. 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 I'm happy that I've ever been. says you have to see when you're doing that because you want to see things clearly oh seeing things clearly means seeing them without attachment and that's when my students say well that means all of a sudden I'm gonna become stoic and cold I said, well, no I hope not keep your heart huh in other words the I think the other problem with Buddhism has been translated in the West is we get this thing about attachment and detachment Think, oh, well, I, I'm, yesterday I wasn't a Buddhist, but today I am, so I'm totally detached. <laughs> I'm above it all. But the point of, I think, Buddhist wisdom is you are connected. You are dependent. You are connected with everybody and everything else here that comes into your purview. There's a reason for it. Uh, and we're all in the same predicament, too. So we might as well try to help one another, I think Buddhism says. Why? Same way as Dr. King said. Because if I harm you, it harms me. That's what Martin Luther King said. Why should I harm you? To the extent I, or let's go, let's go to the Good Samaritan. I mean, why would I harm you, you're me? Mm. Or what Desmond Tutu means when he says Ubuntu means my humanity is inextricably bound up with you. I am only human insofar as I act humanely. That's what it means to be human, it's to act humanely. Otherwise, be anything else, animal, hunger, ghost, any of that. But if you know you're human, you ought to act humanely. You ought to care for one another. You ought to love one another, so forth. I'm not a selflessness. Since the wisdom is, that's our, our actual state. We are dependent beings, selfless, 
that is not as we think we are. And this thinking that we're limited only causes us harm. Causes us harm. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm going to keep clean, pristine. Oh, I'm going to think about those poor people with such pity. This wisdom ought to open us up to our connectedness, our interbeing. I just meant to write that down from Ty. Our interbeing. That's the only way we actually exist. Take a high. Any other difficult concepts? Because these are all related to love, compassion, and community. Other. Any, any, any of you understand any of these terms differently and can help us out? Is, is anything I said about them difficult for you? Not that you can't understand it. It's difficult to put into practice. Why would you see that there would be roadblocks to that or problems with that? Ooh, hands up, hands up, okay. So thinking about how in the West we see ourselves as individuals, we want to be unique. Mm -hmm. something unique. Buddhism doesn't want to do away with that uniqueness. It says each and every one of us is the result of particular causes and conditions. Unless those conditions are met, we would not arise. That's all. It, it, it means until those conditions are met, unless those conditions are met, we wouldn't be here. I, I, in African in African American culture, I can say this is like African Americans realizing and respecting that they they are here because their ancestors were here. You know, we are part of a tradition. All right, and in Africa, I think each one of us has a special gift we can give. It's uniquely our own. Uh, you know. It's, it's, it's the, the old little Christian saying, you know, let your light shine. All right, so do that. Find what is, is your gift to share with others and, do, and give that. Um, okay. It's the, the reason this 
I think gets confusing is we hear, we hear that we're dependent beings as, as um, an attack on our individuality, as an attack on our uniqueness. And it's not intended to be that. It's intended to say you are part of a larger thing. That's the value I want to get at. I'm not sure I'm getting at it. But that's what I'm trying to get at. I think Buddhism says we, we don't exist independently. And knowing that should free us up, not mind us. But it's a hard nut to crack. It's hard to get through. It is. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh -huh. Go ahead. No, I think. I think Buddha nature is what you see when you practice, oh, I'm not gonna get stuck on that, not gonna get stuck on that, I'm just gonna be here. And you catch what's behind all those fleeting thoughts. And what's behind all those fleeting thoughts is your beautiful, shining, infinite, pure self. And you go, whoa! Then you don't need anybody to tell you you are all right. <laughs> Lama Yishi had to work with me for 15 years. He said, you okay, you are all right. I go, oh, no, not my miserable self. No, 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 Lama, don't even say, don't even say my name, you. He said, you're all right. You're okay. At your core, you're pure. I go, oh, no, not me. Right? I mean, sometimes that training seems hard. You know? And all he was doing was loving me up. And even that was too hard. Oh, no, no, I'm not good. I'm not, I'm not, you know? Uh, so, but anyway, what I'm saying is we, we practice, I think, on to, to, to watch things arise and go so we don't hook on and get taken off. If you do that long enough and with enough seriousness, not meditating like this, but, you know, meditating over and over and over again, on. In the Tibetan, it's called the gap. You know, like Bardo Tadal, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that, that space in between? It's the space in between that's your pure natural self, and it's vast. But we don't see it because we, we get, we like, you know, you come into a room and there's a TV on and you're trying to talk to the person. But... <laughs> exactly that. You train so that you don't do this. And when you don't do that, you just settle. <clears throat> That big mind that's empty of all those discursive thoughts just appears before you. And you go, dang, is that what I have in me? Don't you? Come on, somebody now. I, I, I need an amen on this. <laughs> somebody has seen that, haven't you? All right. Okay, that's some personal practitioners here now. I just started this stuff. Come on. Come on now. You get to see that.
that's a big glorious you shining, you know, like doggone. You went, whoa, is that really my mind? Is that really my butter nature? Not bragging here, because no matter how hard you try, you can't just sit down and go back at it again. Huh? But it's there, and you need that confidence that it's there. So the practice is just to stop doing that. Just relax, just settle down, stay awake. Huh? We meditate, feels warm, feels good. <laughs> stay awake. You catch the gap. You catch in between the thoughts. You catch in between. In between is where you want to catch. Was that clear? Mm -hmm. Oh, that was good. I never got that analogy before. <laughs> Sorry, there was another. I mean, we like, we're so desirous, you know? This is the asrama, the attachment that Angela was going to talk about. One slight example, an, one another example. I like some hip hop. I do. <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, you know, when there used to be Circuit City, uh, Circuit City's new songs would come out on Tuesday. And I check on the Then on Tuesday, I was there, and I go, you know, I want the back, this back up your business. You said you'd have it today. <laughs> well, man, I don't think it's here. Well, but it's Tuesday, and you know, <laughs> get a little antsy. You got the desire, and you know, you would want it. So we've got some time, and I haven't gotten to. Uh, anyway, are there are there other terms? Buddha Dharma. Okay, so what's any any terms? Other terms? Terms? Okay. Still, I still haven't got this. Our connectedness as a result of that, right? Your satisfaction. 
we are connected to everything anyway, right? We need air to breathe, right? So we need to take in from outside. As much as we say we're independent, we just need to try to stop breathing the sea, right? We are connected to the world largely, right? So we ought to want to make it a good world. We ought to, we ought to want to make it, I don't know what I'm saying, you know. We, you know, <laughs> let's get environmentally engaged, you know. I want people to have clean water, you know. I want them to have clean water all over the world, you know. I, I, I go to Kathmandu and there's the Bug, uh, the Bug Muddy River, you know, and it used to go like a rabbit through the city, you know. And now it's just sludge and gray, you know. You have to go 45 minutes out to catch the water running. By the time it gets to the city, which has tripled in population in the last 20 years, as most cities are happening around the world, right? People are going into urban centers, right? I want those kids to have clean water. They don't have it now, right? So we're connected in that way. Joanna Macy, you may, somebody mentioned. Joanna Macy, who gives those workshops, lets us know, you know, that we, we work our way back in time. I mean, not just centuries, you know, but millennia and millennia on back to we're just the amoebas, you know? Not the, the stardust with that too. She has us going back. We become amphibious, you know? We feel the webs. We feel them. So we're dependent in that way, that something came before us, you know? Karma is more than just, you know, generationally there are things. Good book by a woman named, I think. Good book by a woman, woman named Joanne. Joanne DeGruy. She spells it D E G R U I. Yes, Larry. Yeah. Uh, Larry. Well, right. She was, she was Larry before she was done. And then, yeah. right. And she has written a book and made a video, and it's called uh, Post Slavery. Uh, Post-traumatic post slavery syndrome, yeah. like that, you know, play off T, uh, P, right, right, which says that there are generational habits on both sides, black and white, generational things, behaviors, she says, you know, and I go, Don, that's right. I mean, all I have to do is see a black person. I say hello. I don't have to know them. How you doing? You know? Glad you're here. You know, I feel camaraderie with you. You know? Instantly. And I'd be a conference in, in, in you know, white college and shit. Yeah, you seem to know an awful lot of people. I don't have to know them. You know, that's my people. Right? But, all right. And she also says there are other things. Whites do. I, I get bowled over in my grocery store in Middletown, Connecticut.
called Post-Traumatic Slavery Syndrome. Wonderful. All right. Maybe we should stand for a moment, stretch. I'll find out what, what next little turn to take. Five-minute break. Five minutes. One way of thinking about our connectedness has to do with our sort of fundamental humanness. Um, the Dalai Lama often says, we all wish to be happy, and we all wish to avoid suffering. Or he says, all beings wish to be happy, and all beings wish to avoid suffering. In this regard, we are all exactly alike. Exactly alike. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. It's so short and sweet and simple. In this respect, we are exactly alike. And Martin Luther King gives a sermon on loving our enemies. And what I found as I began to study Buddhism is that so much of what I found in Buddhist texts, I had already heard. I'd heard these principles before, you know? in connection with marching with King in Birmingham as a teenager. I had heard these things before. The importance of nonviolence. Gonna um, talk a bit about that. Um, the importance of recognizing our connectedness. King was the first in my, in my experience to talk about true interrelatedness, inner being. Long before the internet, he talked about the inner connections in sermons. I mean, it wasn't like I went to his sermons. He had a church in Atlanta for a while, but mainly in Montgomery. But in his published sermons, one book of which I highly recommend, there's two collections of his published sermons. Look, one I always travel with, see if I can pull it out here, is called, oh my goodness. <laughs> Please, you did not see that. <laughs> this one, there's two collections of King's sermons. Uh, one is called uh, A Knock at Midnight. This one's the first one and the best one, I think. A Knock at Midnight is good, too, because it comes with some sermons, and it's more up-to-date. There, there's commentary by a number of people before each sermon. It's thematic. This is just 15 of King's sermons that Coretta Scott King pulled together. 
and it's called Strength to Love. It's like you have to be a brave bodhisattva. You have to be a warrior bodhisattva. It's hard out there. You got to keep your wits about you. It takes strength to love. It is not easy to love. It's not easy to forgive. In other words, it is, as King says, it is an ability that must become an attitude for us, not just a knee-jerk reaction. That's what King says. In other words, you can't just pretend you love that person, especially when you know that person has done you harm or means to do you harm. King said you can't just, it's not a switch you can turn on and off. But with analysis, he says, it's so Buddhist. Just with reflection, he says, you can see that even a moment of hatefulness coming at you, you see that person and you see, he says, and you say to yourself, that is not all of who he is. That same man that wears that hood goes home and picks up a baby and, and hugs a wife. In some cases, not in some that were written about. In other words, that person knows about love. Hmm? And you have to see that even though hate may be coming at you, that's not the whole of them. I find that very Buddhist, but you know, and maybe just a way of saying it through my Buddhist lens, you know. But you know that's not all of who they are. We are various, you know, we, we have our own, we got our own special things. So King says it takes practice to turn love into an attitude. And then he talks about what makes the Samaritan good. What made him good? In a time when people wouldn't touch him, yet he saw a man wounded on the side of the road and decided to help. What was the Levite doing? Saw the man on the side of the road, decided to cross over to the other side. What was going on there? And the priest came along, did the same thing. Samarian came along, said, didn't say anything, went over and started helping me. Bound up his wounds, put him on his ass, took him to the inn, told him, here's some money. If it's not enough, I'll pay you when the next come through. All right, this is a time when Nobody would touch a Samaritan except another Samaritan. Hmm? Wouldn't touch him. I see this in India played out, when, especially in younger days in India. Kids would be joking. Only certain people would, certain kids would laugh. They weren't high enough caste to, do that, to take part. All right, there are all these divisions we make. The king says, but the Samaritan, what makes him good? What makes him so special? And king says, in the sermon on being a good neighbor, this is my community thing, neighbors, we're all neighbors, huh? is that the Samaritan says, the Samaritan doesn't ask, doesn't ask, if I help this man, what will happen to me? Right? He doesn't ask it that way. The Samaritan says, if I don't help the man, what will happen to him? That's bodhisattva. That's love. 
that's putting others, you know, in front of your own immediate desires. And I've had people tell me, maybe the Levite, you know, was late for an appointment. I can understand it. There were strict rules of pollution. I can understand that. But that's still, if I help him, what will happen to me? The Samaritan says, if I don't help him, what will happen to him? And King, and, and so there, these are 15 sermons, and I love them. I just love them. Um, who is my neighbor? He's anyone to whom you act neighborly. And so King then pulls in the Good Samaritan tale and says, this is what, and then Jesus tells that tale, tells, it's told in Matthew and it's told in Luke, but right after that, he steps down and goes over and t- talks to the leper woman, touches her. See, what would Jesus do? How did Jesus act? Not just the big action that some of us believe happened, that my sister most certainly believes happened. He says, just look at all that suffering he took for us. And my father says about Mel Gibson's movie, he left out the best part. He left out the part at the end, my father says. Because after all that suffering, he arose. Oh, I'm preaching again. <laughs> one, last, one last thing, one last thing. Samaritan asked the question about the other. Why is community important for us? The Buddha founded a Sangha too. He founded a community of practitioners. That community was fourfold. It consisted of monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen in that order. Sixth century BC India. Poor women, they're always at the bottom, but you know, like that. And it was, it was intended to help practice, to help our practice. Because if you think that things don't go in, on in a monastery or a nunnery, like go on in this world, you know, you're probably mistaken. It's just that they come on heavy duty there. You know, because people are, I think, being really themselves. They just didn't check it at the door. So even though people are sort of kind, when jealousy comes up, it comes up. So a community is helpful for our practice, always. Because we can be fine as long as 
we're in a situation like this, you give me hugs, I love it. Right? But we're feeling good towards one another, you know? And then I go out and somebody makes me mad. Then where'd all that good love and kindness go? But in a, in a monastic situation, you're there, you live in it. You know where you go. So it's a really good practice situation. And it has to be done, now I get to this. In order for this to become a practice, it has to be practiced. And in order for us to work on it, others are essential. It's so simple, isn't it? You can't practice this by yourself. Ooh, I know I love it. Oh, I, I mean, after a while, they get tired, you know? <laughs> you know? Others are absolutely essential. So even if you're selfish about it, you got to practice with others. Got to. Love them up, work for their benefit. It's better to love these up and work for their benefit than it is, I hate those ones. That gets tired quick and it drains you. Thich Nhat Hanh said, everybody on this group, those young folk, those, that social youth group he founded during the war, there was just one rule. You had to take that a day off. The day off was for you to replenish and rejuvenate through meditation so that you could go back into the world. That was the one rule. I mean, there's 14 rules you might know for his order. But the one strict rule was, no matter where they practice, in the slums, where they, but during the war, you know, like, give me 20 minutes, Viet Cong side. Give me 20 minutes, Jim. I'm going in, I'm gonna take these wounded to hospital. That's what they did. Scared to death, bullets whizzing, you know, whizzing by. They just need 20 minutes. They're going into the middle. They're going to get these bodies, take them to the hospital. Both sides agreed. Both sides would stop in the middle of pitch battles. Oh, wonderful memoir stories told. Chung Kyung story called Learning True Love. Marvelous. That's, that's Ty's yeah. uh, companion and co-founder of Plum Village, the woman. Come from a wealthy family, but started working with him. And the, the rule was hard for her to follow. She was so used to working in the slums and going out and working hard. And Ty, that was the rule that was hardest for her to follow. Ty said, you got to take one day off just for meditation, retreat, cook some good food for yourself, but you can't come out here and work like you've been doing seven days a week. That will wear you out. Joanna Macy's meditations are to help rejuvenate you for the struggle. Lama Zopa, who is Lama Yeshe's chief disciple, says one shouldn't have the idea that meditation is just for oneself. Meditation is to help you act in the world. That's what Lama Zopa says. Meditation is, is to enable you to act in the world. So, love and the strength to love.
The Samaritan was good because he made concern for others the first love of his, the first law of his life. The ultimate measure of a man is, it sounds like platitudes, but the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. This is in, on being a good neighbor. This is all about the Good Samaritan. Then um, he has a sermon, Love in Action. Then he has a sermon, Loving Your Enemies. And he says right out, I know that this is not easy, but it is a practice. Let us be practical and ask the question, how do we love our enemies? <laughs> he goes into that. Oh, first he begins with this quote. I'm, I'm not going to read much of it, but some of these things are so wonderful, I think. Loving your enemies. Matthew, we have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. One of the things that Martin Luther King says, especially in relation, he's talking about actually a person who appears before you in a Klan outfit. And when he, when he says, I know that that's not all of them, he goes through a three-step process that to me is much like Buddhist meditation. First, I think, first King says, I think to myself, hmm, have I, do I deserve this? <laughs> first, did I have some doing in this badness that's coming towards me? Sounds a lot like karma, karma teaching. Did I have something to do with this? Uh, uh, and then I, I see that the, there is some good in the, in the worst of us and some bad in the best of us. I tell myself that. And thirdly, I say, this is momentary. That person also, like me, knows love. And then he ultimately says, I think, even if you don't like the person, you with me? Even if you don't like them, if you're a child of God, if you call yourself that, I might say, if you're a practicing Buddhist, still you gotta love the person. You gotta love them. Don't have to like them, but you gotta love them. Why? Because there's that kind of unconditional love. Just as it was, Christians say, just as it was shown to us, hmm? Hmm, do you know the verse? The simple, simple verse, it said, God is love. Do you know that? It's not from John, like John 3.16, you see it at, at, at football games. I do like football. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the first epistle of John. It's not like the fourth gospel. It's in the later letters. In those later letters, John is explaining to the early churches that Jesus was a ransom, as he does in the, in the fourth gospel. That Jesus was a ransom for our sins, therefore we are sinless. Uh, but, his whole, but the whole point of the 
this main passage is to say that because God loves us, not we should love God. That's not what's next. He says over and over again, because God loved us so much, we are called upon to what? Love each other. It's a pretty amazing term, you know, if you're watching the logic of a piece of, that's what we're required to do? Yes, that's what the Christian message seems to say. Because God loved us so much, we should love our neighbors. That's what Matthew says. When the priest says, okay, what's the greatest commandment? He puts Jesus on the spot, right? What's the greatest commandment? You over there acting like a rabbi. <laughs> but I don't know you, you know. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to him, thou shalt love God, thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind and all thy soul. Then he says, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Can we do it? All right, there seems to be a leap that's necessary here. What is it? Isn't it? It's a tough one, you know, and the second is like, I'm supposed to love myself. You know, I always thought there's as much problem with that part of that second thing. You know, Sharon Salzberg had to tell the Dalai Lama, you know, some of us don't feel that way about our mothers and fathers, she said. And His Holiness kept going, well, you know, and get another translator. What did she say? <laughs> what? What? You mean some of these folk don't love their parents? Huh? What? What? And Sharon said, well, yeah, some have problems with their, <laughs> their parents. You can't love them. His Holiness just couldn't get it. He couldn't get it. In the Tibetan culture, I mean, you know, that's mom, that's dad. That's it, you know. We love them. Oh, but we've got all these. All right, so you're right. But we have just as much problem with the second part of that. Thou shalt love thy neighbors as thyself. Woo! Oh. Now, I just want to drop this in the thing. I've said that Lama Yeshe spent 15 years trying to give me confidence. That was his main teaching, I think. Because when I, when I arrived, I arrived with a lot of baggage, you know. Oh, damn it, You know, he, being smart isn't enough. I don't know whether I'm really smart. I don't know why I measure up. I don't, you know, yeah, blah, blah. He's really kind, you know. He put up with something, you know, I'm sure. All this stuff coming at him, he says, you're all right. So this, uh, what His Holiness, uh, excuse me, what Lama Yesus says in Introduction to Tantra, that's always stuck out for me because it has such an impact. I know about that. He says, I find that people in the West have, many of them seem to have a very limited view of themselves and of their abilities. And what I want to say is that tantric methodology, this will be a generalization, a little overgeneralized. 
But the way Tantra works, and the reason it as a methodology might be beneficial to beings, is that Tantra says, excuse me, Tantra says, we spend so much time not just being distracted. We spend so much time with negative imaging of ourselves or negatively viewing ourselves and limiting ourselves that a good practice for us would be to spend time, this is how Tantra works, think of it as a medicine chest, a tool chest, has 740 deities. Are the external deities? Some people might think so, but are they external? No. One is the Buddha's wisdom. One is the Buddha's longevity. One is the Buddha's, you know, compassion. One is the Buddha's capabilities. One is the Buddha's power. One is, right, there's 740 of them. And the practice is to assume one of those identities. Like we were talking about Hindus think that God is called this. You, know? you actually, in, in, in Tantra, you know, beam me down, Scotty. Beam me down. I'm just to your cross leg. The knees are hard to go. Huh? But then generate, uh, generate an arcane anatomy, and then generate an outer shell. First you generate the outer shell. Then you generate the uh, Then you make things happen. Right? Then you're practicing certain kundalini yoga and other things. Huh. But, but generally what you're doing is you're hanging out in the space of capability. You're hanging out in infinite compassion. Huh? You've generated yourself that way, now think of yourself that way. Tantra says, you're a Buddha, be one. Not to be arrogant about Tantra. The method is to transform your ordinary body, speech, and mind into the body, speech, and mind of a Buddha. So you get to think now, what would a Buddha do? How does a Buddha feel? How does, you know? That's what you do, practicing Tantra. Under a teacher's guidance, right? Not just reading a book and on your own. That causes problems. Huh? So, so Tantra may be particularly attractive to people with low self-esteem. It worked for me. It was, I mean, I, I'm not claiming any, but it was great. You know? Just think that you're Green Tara, doggone it. What's Green Tara? Powerful. What's Green Tara? She can get things done. Hmm? Practice that way. Stop disparaging yourself. Think of yourself in this way. Hmm? So the, the upshot, the, the long and the short of that is, I think when the Buddha says there's a path to the cessation of suffering, and so many Buddhist texts say, say there, that means there are 84,000 different paths, right? And we tend to think, oh, there's Japanese Zen, and then there's Vipassana, and then there's this, and these are just uh, the multitude of paths dependent upon your guru and your student and the relationship you set up are methods for ending suffering. So maybe we need to think about that part a little bit more, that first part, and then finding a method for that. Hmm? 
and know that the others require met methodology too. They require practice. Love is, developing love is both, uh, I need it. <laughs> so I'm not trying to say I, I know, but the, developing love is, is both, uh, requires analytics, it requires analysis, as well as calming. Like King says, you have to go through this thing each time. Why are you having, why is that a stumbling block? Why can't you get past this particular nut? Why is it that we know that we want to become Buddhas in order to liberate all beings except that one? <laughs> you know, what can that mean, you know? How can we make that a reality? I want to liberate all beings. Right? All beings are equal. All beings. Love us, let's love us all, including ourselves. And I think that's also why it's good that Metta is brought more into the Pasana places for practice. We're going to end with a metta prayer, a metta meditation. Oh. <laughs> so let's talk for a, a bit. I, so I don't know. I, I tried to start a bit on this. Mm. Uh, it's true. We need to we need to be in a a place where we can love ourselves as well. Metta meditations are good because they involve ourselves and others. Uh, but it's also true that it does no good. It's just sheer pretense to pretend that we're doing this. It's hard work, I think. I don't know. Some of you may have had a really easy time, but I think it's really difficult. It requires work. But what else are you going to do with life? Any of you ever hear of Kala Rinpoche? Might have been too long ago, Stephen. He was one of the early monks to come here. Very, He was elderly when he first came. He used to teach the three-year retreats to Tibetans. Three-year, three-month, three days. And he was one of the earliest monks to do that with Westerners. But I heard him talk at Berkeley once in the early 70s. And Kala Rinpoche said, look at all of you here, you know, through a translator, look at all of you here. You weren't born Buddhist. <laughs> so I said, mm -hmm, yeah, right. Mm -hmm, yeah. And, and then he said, whatever you do, don't swap one pretense for another pretense. We spend most of our time pretending anyway, that pretending about this one. So don't swap that for pretending we're Buddhist, you know, like let's try to do it authentically. I thought that was such powerful teaching. Don't swap one pretense for another. I feel like I haven't gotten into the idea of love very well. But uh, I think maybe we should have try for a little um, question and answers or 
things that as our day is drawing to an end, we feel like we need to talk about, either with, through uh, questioning me or with each other, while we're together. What's really important could be discuss discussed while we're discussing topics like this. Should we talk about what we, what we think needs to be done and how we could do it? Or shall we talk more about particular topics, Buddhist topics or other? Michael and then Phil? Well, I was just going to put forth a question. I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about right livelihood. And as a young person, I struggle with finding a vocation that I feel myself in a place where I the job that I have is not fulfilling in that in that regard. So I wonder, you know, how you navigate the question of right livelihood and how you reach how you reach a point at which you can affect change. <laughs> well, I've been really fortunate to have a job I really love. I'm about to get ready to really miss it now. So I've just been fortunate. Right livelihood means, I think, any vocation that is non-harmful. Non-harmful and causes benefit, can't lose. And it is, it seems like that's so general, but that even that's difficult. A job that doesn't cause harm. Well, you want to strike out being a butcher, you know, that kind of thing, right? But I've already heard you're doing something quite wonderful. Not the books for this, maybe, but the music. We each have something. You know, I like to tell stories. We each have something. You are good at music and compose it, so go for it. I don't think that'd be harmful at all. I wish you all success. 
right livelihood is any livelihood that causes no harm. Hopefully, teaching doesn't cause harm, making music doesn't cause, hopefully, you know. <laughs> I really mean it. I think that's what right means in that, that balance. You're not doing it just for self, just to benefit self, but it's all right if self gets benefited, if others don't get harmed. And you have to really be sure you're clear about that. Ahimsa is difficult. <laughs> I told a friend recently that I'd hear monks when I was with the Tibetans and staying with them. And sometimes you talk along with Tibetan or they're doing ritual things. Oh, you don't want to smash that mosquito. My mother used to come through the room looking for the fly with the flies. She'd look at me and she'd go, oh, you, you won't tell me. <laughs> I was like, well, it's difficult to live your life rightly, right livelihood, not causing harm in your relationship, you know, living, doing your best to not cause harm, not being uptight but trying your best not to cause harm. His Holiness says, do that, you know, practice non-harm. But if you find that really difficult, I mean, try to practice good, but if you find that really difficult, at least try not to harm, he says. At least try not to harm. Now that's what right livelihood means, I think. Phil. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I have a bunch of questions, but I, I'll just stick to maybe two of them. Okay. I have a part-time job where uh, people are uh, sentencing, they jump a turnstile, they get convicted of a crime, fraud, whatever, and they uh, the judge community service. speech. Uh, I, 
for me, that's going to take that's going to take some practice. So I, you know, in terms of being not causing harm, because sometimes you just it's, uh, the circumstance is just right in your face, and you you have to deal with it accordingly. And then the last question is that, you know, looking at the news, and as much as I, before I was retired, I was in the news business, and it just seems like uh, there's so much suffering in the world and evil and, and uh, uh, what one calls evil. It's uh, difficult to, uh, uh, Thank you. I said it was easy to practice right livelihood, but because we are connected, because the world is interdependent, these are not just simple choices. So I won't be a butcher. Yeah, but do you support companies that are butchers? You know, do you, do you, is there some way that In other words, since we are connected, since this, this connection is really there, I think you have, we, maybe I didn't, we didn't have time really to like really get a sense of how connected we are. Then it's not a one time simple choice. It's all the things that you, you could see could be spun out from that. We, we have to be clear about the choices we make because everything affects another thing, right. okay? So then you could, you could keep, you know, just don't make yourself in the end, you know, unable to do anything, right? Because it, it seems like so much, the, wor the world is embroiled and we're not stopping it, so we're allowing it to con continue. Well, I suggest that, look, because of my age, I'm not, glorifying age, but because of my age, not only did, was there the 60s, but right at the end of the 60s, starting in 63, November 1963, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. November. All right, then we had, um, who was next? Malcolm, then Robert. Then, so oftentimes, I've gone to places, you know, years back, when people are saying, what can we do? It's like, it's, sort of, it's hopeless now. It's like all this good feeling, look what it's come to. I felt like that when you, my heart sank on the voting rights thing. You know, it's like, look, so what can you do? And my experience is this. It doesn't matter how small, but start doing something with somebody else. And you'll find that immediately sort of the number of people who feel the way that you do and who are invested in trying to make things better will give you hope. I don't think hope can come from just thinking about it. That's a really tough thing you have to do. You want them not to go back to, I know. But little can be small. You can still do music. You can still coach kids on, you know, reading. We need to, to learn that. 
There's one state prison in Connecticut. I go there. In Connecticut, Buddhism is not recognized as being a world religion. In New York it is, but not in Connecticut. So I can't say I'm talking about Buddhism. But I have these little workshops, overcoming obstacles, count to 10, which is like, you know, we're thinking about right speech. There are a little bit of scriptures that, you know, I know this is tough, but there are a little bit of scriptures that I go, yeah, right. But the Buddhist scripture says, you have to think four things about that. You're in this situation and you really want to just pop the person, <laughs> but you can't do that. And are you wise enough right now to really teach the person? Is this a teaching moment? Can you do that with how you're feeling about it? So it, there's this Buddhist scripture that says there are these four contemplations before you speak. Will I have to speak? Will it be beneficial? Will it be heard? Will it be this? Will it be that? If not, become like a log. Next time. Wait for next time. <laughs> you know, these little practices. And for me, it's like count to ten or... You know, try, but that's why it's so hard. It's hard. I hope I don't leave you with the impression that it's easy. I don't want you to swap one pretense for another, please. But it is worth doing. Oh, if there's remedy for it, Shanti Deva, I was just saying that to who? If there is remedy for a situation, then why the worry? Eighth century poet, Shantideva, wonderful. Bodhicari avatar, the way of the Bodhisattva. If there is a remedy for the situation, why worry? If there is no remedy for the situation, why worry? It's sort of a twist on the serenity prayer or something, you know? Shantideva says, if there is a remedy? And His Holiness was saying that to me. I went to His Holiness in 1970, last story, with two good friends who are still good friends. We went to discuss with His Holiness. It was the first time we were meeting him. Kent State had just happened. We went as the young college radicals. Well, you know, all right. In those days, 1970, you, you saw Tenzing, His Holiness's secretary. <laughs> this is in Dharamsala. Just walking along this one little street vegetable subject stands on either side, a community plan for 300 Tibetans. So you could see His Holiness's secretary, you know, a monk, just walking along the market there. So he said, Tenzing, 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 could we see His Holiness? Let me see. Go under his robe. Could you come tomorrow at 3? Yeah, <laughs> it was easier in those days. In other words, always scrubbed up, you know, we put on our best. We went over. And, you know, it was proper etiquette. We waited, and then when we got to see, his holiness opens the door, come in. You know, and then we all had our different reactions. I thought he was, you know, a giant. <laughs> you know? Ooh, he was so tired. No, he was that big, that tall. All right, then we started doing prostrations. And his holiness comes up, oh, get up, come on, come on, we'll sit on the couch. Right? None of that, you know, he had a cut, no, none of that, come on, sit on the couch. And then he wanted us to tell him, now, you are college students, now, what is really happening there? 
just what we wanted to talk about, but, you know. Well, you know, His Holiness, four people on that campus in Ohio were shot in the back, you know, they're running away from the National Guard. Tell me, really, really. Tell me everything. All that. <laughs> this is now. I understand from Tenzin that you are studying with Geshe Rata. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. Yes. Well, he's one of my teachers. He's a good teacher. Yes. <laughs> so, aren't you studying about patience? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, uh, aren't you studying about uh, clarity, being clear about your actions? Well, yeah. Mm. He says, so what's, what is the problem you're experiencing? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so he says, well, aren't you patient? You know, and I just, well, that wasn't good enough for me. I said, well, you're holding this look. I said, you know, these people here, these policemen here, these National Guardsmen, I mean, I mean they have guns, we don't have anything, you know. He said, uh, Bodhisattvas, there's nothing in the Mahayana that says you have to wait until you're a full, fully enlightened Buddha before you can act. So again, I'm trying to say that all of my teachers along the way have, have said something about don't wait till you're perfected to act. Don't feel like, oh, you know, I'm not a Buddha, I don't know what to do. You know, <laughs> don't use that, you can't use that as an excuse, you know, no excuse. So his holiness began with, you don't have to wait until, we know in the Mahayana we say, you know, your buddy Sattva and there are these 10 stages, he went through all of that. We saw him for like two and a half hours, just the three of us. Old days. You know, there are these ten stages, and you know, Buddhahood's the last one. What is the Buddha then? He's fully, he's a Buddha, he's a cloud of Dharma, reigns on all equally, knows that everyone is exactly equal, knows without thinking is a cloud of Dharma, right? But you don't have to wait till you're perfected in order to act. What you have to be is patient enough to be clear, he said. It was so clear. I was fighting it. It was so clear. You have to. Practice patience enough to be really clear about your actions. Does not mean you don't act, but you have to practice patience in order enough to be really clear. Your choice has to be clear. How you intend to help has to be clear. Hmm? So finally he said, and I've said to you in the hallway, His Holiness said, if you've made the choice to protect these, you're on the side of the students, and there are people facing you with guns. He said, if you call them pigs, they have to kill you. You're not practicing Buddhism. But if you, in full knowledge that they are policemen, just like, and that they're people just like you, and you wish them well, he said, and you wish them well, then you stop them from harming these. I thought, wow. Did His Holiness the Dalai Lama just say that, you know? It was like he said, by any means possible. But you had to be, you had to have heard those two hours before. You had to have heard the patience and the clarity and practice, practice, practice. So I think doing something, 
I don't mean just anything, but anything that's helpful and not harmful is good practice, you know? I think people feel happiest, so it's also selfish. People feel happiest, I really believe, when they've done something. When you come in, you've really been working at the soup kitchen or whatever, and you're really tired, more tired than you've ever been because you've been hauling all these bags of groceries, you can sleep good. Even if that's selfish happiness. You did good. You know when you did good. You don't need anybody to tell you. But it feels good. So why not do it? There's even a selfish component. You feel happy. So if you want beings to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. His Holiness says that. If you want beings to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Compassion means not a schmaltzy, not a la-la land, oh, I want everybody to be happy. <coughs> compassion means you don't want people to suffer. That's the difference. How can you keep people from suffering? That's our job. I think so, stretch, questions, whatever. Break for five minutes, we'll come back and have a little discussion, a little sit. Dr. King was the first person in whose writings I saw this now commonplace distinction between uh, the different forms of love, you know, the Greek forms of uh, the word love. Uh, and he delineated those forms in a sermon he gave on, on loving our enemies, actually. And he said that those, the Greeks knew three kinds of love. The first was uh, eros, or passionate love, physical love, to, to love something dearly. And the second uh, was philia, after which the city of Philadelphia, I think, was his example, uh, a kind of brotherly love civic religion, if you will, it's kind of community feeling. Uh, but then there was agape, or as I was explaining to the women in, at York, before I could write the word up, I said, and then there's agape, then they said agape, God's love. They said, and I thought, oh, okay. Everybody knows about that. Well, that's and the kind of unconditional love you have 
for everything that comes in your experience because you know how similar they are to you. In other words, they're just like you. And that's what His Holiness is saying when he says everyone wishes to be happy and everyone wishes to avoid suffering. You can always think that way about whomever you encounter, particularly someone who's giving you problems. This is a method, you know, it's just what you know, and you know that it's true, but you don't care particularly at the time because they're wounding you in some way. There's a common uh, prayer that's used in, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, I know, and probably other traditions, that, that calls upon us to reflect upon uh, and to visualize at the same time a friend, a friend who's seated in your presence, right? An enemy, which Westerners often have trouble with, well, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to have any of those, am I? I don't know who to put there. <laughs> oh, we are something. Uh, but, you know, somebody, okay, you have a hard time with, you know, for whatever reason, right? Just you know, the wrong way, you know. Could be somebody you see at work every day. Oh, try the religion department. Oh, oh boy. And then a stranger, right? And, and you reflect. You really, you sit there and you think, you think of the friend. You know, you can call him to mind. You know, what kind of feelings do you have? You guys ever do this with personal practice? Yeah? Some, sometimes? You know, what kind of feeling you feel? Feel all warm and cuddly? Yeah, it's a really good friend, you know? And the enemy, it makes you really sort of uncomfortable. I don't want to go there. I don't want to visualize him. I don't want to. Right? Uncomfortable, right? And the stranger, well, you know, sort of neutral. I don't really have any kind of. And the Tibetan, probably other practices too, they just ask, now why is that? Why is that, dear? And you expect it to answer. Why is that? Why do you get a good feeling here? An agitated feeling there? And a sort of nothing there. Why? It's a question. On the spot, why? What do you think? Okay, attachment, yeah, certainly. All right, just think about it now. I've had to, here's the friend, and some meditations ask you to put the friend in a different place. There's all these things, you know. But, right, have the friend in your, you're sitting, you're across the, friend is there, whether right or left, all right? Enemies there, confronting in front. Strangers there, all right? You get different feelings. Why is that? And if you had to, you know, I'll wait another moment, because I know you know. Diana? Well, you're thinking in terms of yourself. Yes. What you're going to either get from the, and what you're going to get from them, which will be something nice or something not nice or nothing at all. Or what you've gotten in the past from them. It's all got to do with you. It's got nothing to do with these three. Nothing whatsoever. The friend has done something kind to you. The enemy has upset you some way. And you don't have any feeling here because you don't know the stranger. They haven't interacted with you. It's so simple. That's what attachment is. Attachment is that sticky molasses eye that comes up when you say, I love you. I love you. 
Don't you get it, babes? I love you. <laughs> it's not just love you, but it's I love you. <laughs> that, that's attachment, you're right. And what these individuals have done to you, or you conceive will do to you, hmm? how burdensome. The Buddha said when he attained enlightenment, he just felt that burden of self drop. And he felt so free and light. Whew. From the moment we wake up, we see the world from our point of view. It's heavy. What's going to happen to me? What she say about me? What, I, what have I got to do now? I regret I didn't. I'm sorry I didn't send that email. I got to do I, 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 I. You could just put that I down for a while. You go, oh, gee whiz, that's a relief. And that's what we do. That's, that's one of the goals. Put it down. It's a burden. It's suffering. It's stressful. It's stressful. She is stressful. As the stories of Milarepa and of, of Naropa show, Naropa was full of himself, thought nothing was wrong with his world. Mila was totally absorbed in his misery. The teachers were very different in both cases, but when their disciples said, why do this to that one, and why do this to that one, say, they said the problem is always the same. Whether it's self-pity or self-absorption, it's still self. Self, self, self. Trying to get them out of that. Take a hot. Compassion, I didn't write compassion. Compassion is the ability to have empathy with another because you know they are in fundamental ways exactly as you are. Fragile people, even though they're trying to be so big and they're causing you this harm now. They're exactly like you. They want to be happy. They want to avoid suffering. Just, it's got to be analysis now because we might not feel it, you know, but it's a fact. Mm. Uh, a woman philosopher, Kelly. Oh, I can't think of her name. Maybe her name, first name's Kelly Morgan. A philosopher, modern philosopher, Midwest, says, mm, I could find it in one of these three papers, but I'm not sure. Uh, look, uh, uh, look up a title called Witnessing Beyond Recognition. It's a, a piece that's used in prisons, actually. <laughs> mm. What she means by that, and, and, and she's part of a whole other system of uh, thinking and thought, but what, she, what comes out of it is she says, people should take responsibility for each other. The Buddha said that's why communities are formed, so that people come to care for one another. And in caring for one another, they care for him. And Jesus says many things that are similar to that to his disciples. Because that teaches you how to care. Teaching you how to care for another is very important if you're a human being. Take a, then, all right. Oh, so where was I? Where was I? Compassion, she says. She develops this notion that responsibility ought to be broken. 
for people to get the sense of it. And it comes very close to being compassion. It is our, she says, our response ability. Our ability to respond to others. That's the responsibility we should carry in the world. Our ability to respond. And that's, I think, what Buddhists mean when they say compassion, what Buddhist texts mean. It means the ability to exchange self with others, the ability to have empathy with others, the ability to recognize where another is coming from, even if they're coming at you seemingly harmfully. That's an important, important, I think, lesson. Okay, we have just a minute before we're gonna just do a, slow, a guided meditation on uh, meta meditation by Joanna Macy, recorded in a book by hers called Mm. <laughs> it flew across the here. In a book called Coming Back to Life, which is a collection of meditations by Molly Brown and Joanna and Joanna Macy. In our for five minutes, is there something that we need to talk about or we should talk about that we haven't? I'm so pleased with you all being here. You're very patient and kind. I want to ask a few questions. Okay. The last point you were making about compassion is even if you don't want others to suffer. And you're talking about we have to first ask ourselves how do we cause, are we causing this suffering? I mean, what should be the remedy? How do you? Good question. question. That's a good question. How do you take responsibility? Yeah. I was quoting King, but the, the, when King goes through those steps, when you're confronted, and you're in one of those situations, you're confronted by a hateful person, he says, how, how do you love your enemies? And he says there are three steps. The first of which is you ask yourself, have I been the cause of this? So the question is, how can you ask yourself that without over taking on too much responsibility for it? Right? It's a good question, I think. Let me see if I can answer from him rather than I've been paraphrasing all day. Uh, is that okay? I've got to find it. I, I have these books, I give them away, I yellow them up, and then I. How do we love her? And how do you not take too much responsibility? It's just the thought you have. You can say no. It wasn't this. No, I'm not the reason. This. That's a legitimate answer. But when he asked it, asked it, it reminded me of Buddhist notions of karma. You know, when when Buddhists say, you know, maybe in some former lifetime I did something to somebody, and this is just coming back which is often blaming the victim, so I don't care too much for that. But. So he talks about why should we love our enemies and how do we love our enemies. I'm sorry, I'm trying to find it. It didn't mark this one up.
you can always answer, no, you're not the cause of it. <laughs> or at least as far as I know, there's no good reason for this. No, I didn't do it. Here's something else with this all in fine. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> the wrongdoer may, it sounds so out of context, but anyway, the wrongdoer may request forgiveness. He may come to himself and like the prodigal son, move up some dusty road, his heart palpitating with desire for forgiveness. But only the injured neighbor, the loving father back home can really pour out the warm waters of forgiveness. Remember these are sermons. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. This is a little always weighted much, this is a little different than how I presented it, so I'm glad to have the chance to read it. Forgiveness, I'll say that again, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. This is the reconciliation movement in South Africa. Do you know? You, you, you own up and you forgive. It doesn't mean you have to forget, but it means you have to come clean in a community. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It is a lifting of a burden or the canceling of a debt. The words, I will forgive you, but I'll never forget what you've done, never explain the real nature of forgiveness. Certainly, one can never forget if that means erasing it totally from the mind. But when we forgive, we forget in the sense that the evil deed is no longer a mental block impeding a new relationship. Likewise, this is part of King saying, as long as there's hatred, there is hatred as a response. He says, as long as there's war and there's a winner and a loser, there'll continue to be war. There has to be a stop, and somebody has to be brave enough to stop it. We can never say, I will forgive you, but I won't have anything further to do with you. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. Without this, no man can love his enemies. This is a whole other thing than I said, the forgiveness part. The degree to which we are able to forgive determines the degree to which we are able to love our enemies. Second, we must recognize that the evil deed of the enemy neighbor, the thing that hurts, never quite expresses all of what he is. I did talk about that. It simply means there's some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. Third, we must seek, we must not seek to, this is it, we must not seek to defeat or or to humiliate the enemy, but to win his friendship and his understanding. That's what's so hard and what seems, you know, in the nonviolent thing, how could you just take it? Because at one point King says, we will, we will win by suffering more than he can give, you know? 
Uh, and people go, I don't know about that. But he says, in, the, in, the, in doing so, we win a double victory, his and ours. Because if I demean him or I harm him, I simply demean myself. But if I refuse to demean him and, and treat him as equal, then there's a victory for both of us. This goes into the reconciliation things too. Now I know that this is easier said than done. I realize that. I'm just saying, <laughs> though I've said a lot today, and I, I'm sure I didn't answer your question. I hope we'll, we'll t talk further. I think we need to get to the meditation, so I'm feeling a little rushed. Uh, what I'm saying is that the technology, the methodology offered in Buddhist sanghas, to me, seems to provide an excellent training ground for developing these positive virtues and values. One cannot simply decide to love another. One cannot simply decide that I'm going to treat all people as equal. And that means not superior and not inferior. That's tough. It's really tough. But if one decides that it's a worthwhile goal, then hallelujah that there is a place like this where we can sit and try to develop those positive qualities. It is possible, and we know this because we know people in the Buddhist world and other places who've developed it, who you can just see when you see them, recognize that what they're doing is, mm, is making space for another person because they honor that person. I think that's a worthy goal, so I'm glad that we're here and we're gathered together and we can talk a little bit about it today. Okay, is everybody ready to do a guided meditation? Do you need to stretch beforehand? It's going to be a little speedier than it probably should be, but... Remember, this is Macy. She can get cosmic on you. You can go back in time and, at any rate, so usually a metta meditation. Sorry, I don't know all of them, but metta means loving kindness. It means wishing good and happiness for all beings. And the meditation starts usually by focusing on oneself. It needn't start there. But you focus on self, loving yourself, huh? and loving others whom you know, and loving those whom you have a little problem with, and loving the strangers also. Excuse me, and this was the kind of meditation that amongst the early jubus of IMS, Sharon pushed. There's always Vipassana, Vipassana, but there ought to be more metta, ought to be more metta. Anyone here should, would appreciate uh, Sharon's loving kindness books and her also her small um, memoir on faith, just called Faith. How do you develop confidence in the Buddhist practice? It's a good one, Sharon Salzberg. Okay, please sit comfortably. Let any stress go, tension go from the day. Relax your shoulders. 
and just go along as I, I guide you through this meditation, which Sharon, uh, excuse me, which, which Joanna Macy learned from a Tibetan uh, practitioner. So close your eyes and begin to relax, exhaling to expel tension. Now center on the normal flow of the breath, letting go of all extraneous thoughts as you passively watch the breathing in and breathing out. Now call to mind someone you love very dearly. In your mind's eye, see the face of that beloved one. Silently speak his or her name. Feel your love for this being, like a current of energy coming through you. Now let yourself experience how much you want this person to be freed from fear how intensely you desire that this person be released from greed and ill will, from confusion and sorrow, and the causes of suffering. That desire in all its sincerity and strength, that is metta, the great loving kindness. Continuing to feel that warm flow coming through the heart. See in your mind's eye now those with whom you share your daily life. Family members, close friends and colleagues, the people you live and work with. Let them appear now as in a circle around you. Behold them one by one, silently speaking their names. And and direct to each of them in turn that same current of loving kindness.
Among these beings may be some with whom you are uncomfortable, in conflict or tension. With those ones especially, experience your desire that each of them be free from fear, from hatred, free from greed and ignorance and the causes of suffering. Now allow to appear in wider concentric circles your relatives and your acquaintances. Let the beam of loving kindness play on them as well, pausing on the faces that appear randomly in your mind's eye. With them as well, experience how much you want their freedom from greed, fear, hatred, and confusion. How much you want all beings to be happy. Beyond them, in concentric circles that are wider yet, appear now all beings with whom you share this planet time. Though you have not met, your lives are interconnected in ways of knowing. To these beings as well, direct the same powerful current of loving kindness. Experience your desire and your intention that each awaken from fear and hatred, from greed and confusion, that all beings be released from suffering. As in the ancient Buddhist meditation, we direct the loving kindness now to all the hungry ghosts, the restless spirits that roam in suffering, still prey to fear and confusion. May they find rest. May they rest in the great loving kindness and in the deep peace that it brings. Now, by the power of our imagination, let us move out beyond our planet, out into the universe, into other solar systems, other galaxies, other Buddha fields. The current of loving kindness is not affected by physical distances, and we direct it now as if aiming a beam of light 
to all centers of conscious life, to all sentient beings everywhere, we direct our heartfelt wish that they too be free of fear and greed, of hatred and confusion, and the causes of suffering. May all beings be happy. Now from out in the interstellar distances, turn and behold your own planet, your home. See it as suspended there in the blackness of space, like a jewel turning in the light of its sun. That living blue-green planet, laced with swirls of white, is the source of all you are, all you've ever known and cherished. Feel how intensely you desire that it surmount the spreading wounds and dangers of this time. Direct toward it the strong current of your compassion and prayerful wishes for its healing. Slowly approach it now, drawing nearer, nearer, returning to this part of it, this region, this place. And as you approach this place, let yourself see the being you know best of all, the person it has been given you to be in this lifetime. You know its need for love. Know how hard it tries. Let the face of this being, your own face, appear before you. Speak the name you are called and speak it in love. And experience with that same strong current of loving kindness how deeply you desire that this being be free from fear, released from greed and hatred, liberated from ignorance and confusion and the causes of suffering. The great loving kindness linking you to all beings is now directed to your own self. Know now the fullness of it. When you feel ready, 
slowly open your eyes in this space and time. It is my sincere wish that something was said today that was of benefit. And it's been a great, great pleasure visiting this center. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.